Maxine, thank you so much for joining me. And thank you for having me, Tracy. You're welcome. Maxine, first of all, can you tell us what it is that you do? I am actually one of the directors of Horses and People magazine, and I take care of the sales and marketing side of, of the magazine. So I really, I'm the one that looks at um, the advertisers, uh, any stories that come through my desk. Most of them do come through Christina, my business partner, Christina Wilkins. Um, but we we often get the stories coming through here as well. So really vetting a lot of stuff. And how long have you been involved in the magazine? I bought the magazine in 2006. At that stage, um, I went into partnership with another lady. However, she lasted not so long. And um, I had the magazine on my own for about 18 months after that. Christina Wilkins was working for us at that stage. And it was after 18 months, Christina decided to come on as my business partner, which was absolutely super. Um, we work so well together. So it's really been since 2006 that I've been involved with the magazine. Fantastic. And I look forward to talking a bit more about the magazine and uh, how it's changed over time and, and how you've had a hand in that change. But first of all, I'd love to hear a bit more about you, Maxine. Have you grown up with horses? How did your life with horses begin? Yes, I did did grow up with horses. Um, my first involvement was obviously that mum or one a pony, mum or one a pony at the age of probably six. And was she a horse person? Were there horses in your family already? Um, there was no horses in our family at that stage, but my mother was a horse rider from her earlier days. My father really didn't like horses at all, but mum was really, really supportive of me having a pony and off to pony club and, and so on and so forth. Um, not long after that, um, unfortunately, my parents separated and my mother got a new partner that was involved with horses. And the story really become um, very entrenched in the family from that point on. So pretty well most of my life, um, I've been involved with horses one way or another. My stepfather used to do um, pacing. There was gallopers in the family. My personal interest went a different way and that was riding. And at that stage, I was the only rider in the family. The rest of them were, my older sister wasn't involved at all in horses, but the rest of the family were, you know, either pretty well racing in one, one form or another. And whereabouts did you grow up? What area was this in? I lived in Sydney um, in this um, uh, suburb called Macquarie Fields. Um, and we had a small paddock next door to, the pro to our house as well as I had a paddock down the back. Wonderful. So you were the rider. What kind of riding did you do through your teenage years, younger years that start there? everything I could possibly do. Obviously with Pony Club, um, you know, you have the opportunity to do a, a huge amount of different disciplines. And I liked jumping and sporting. My love at that stage really was the more active sports. Dressage was something I thought, oh my God, talk about watching grass grow. <laughs> but as I as I grew older um, and and learnt more and more about horses as I went along, dressage then became something that I was really um, 
I really love to do. I love to train the horses. Yeah, beautiful. And it's difficult when you're really young as well to do something that's so finite and dressage is finite. It's really, um, it's such, you know, small small communication to get a big movement on a horse. And that's really difficult for a young person. So it is something that I guess, um, and I'm assuming here, would come with a bit more maturity. I think so, because you know, kids tend to like um, the variety um, the action and we don't really worry too much about, you know, oh, that horse, my horse can do it. And and the movement, you know, the fast movement and the fun. I did a lot of trails. I used to spend all my weekends at, a, at an old gentleman's place where a group of us girls used to get every weekend on hundreds of acres. And, you know, the things that we had to do there was, you know, we had great big peach orchards and we used to drag out the old Clydes and stand on their rumps to get the peaches out of the top of the trees because they were the sweetest. And we had the opportunity to go, you know, we had a uh, part of the river that he had scooped out so we could take our ponies down into the river and go swimming. So I had a great childhood with, with horses. Wonderful. And where did that take you later in life? So once you finished school... Where did you go from there? Well, then I started um, doing dressage. I did well with it, but you know, not to the level, obviously, that even Christina did. But then I had a, a family. So I gave up riding for um, a number of years to rear the family. Then later in life came back to it. And did you come back to dressage or just horses in general? Dressage, but I, I loved breeding as well. And I used to look after, like I used to adjust horses on my property for the pure pleasure of being able to fall down and, and interact with horses each and every day. Wonderful. And what breed of horse did you work with? Did you breed? I had warm bloods. Yeah, but at that stage too, I was working full time in the um, corporate industry, 18 years in cosmetics and then another about 10 years in drugs, being, you know, um, pharmaceuticals. As in repping? Yes. Oh, well, I was either a, a territory manager, state manager, mm. a major account manager. Yeah, so a lot of experience in sales. Yes. Yep. And, yeah, developing smaller businesses. Mm. And how do you go from doing those jobs to owning a magazine. Isn't that an interesting subject? Yes. <laughs> After many years of um, the corporate, and I used to travel a lot, so that used to pull me away from the horses a bit. So, yeah, when I first bought Horses and People magazine, I decided I was going to retire from the, the corporate world and was looking for something that I could possibly do part-time. And so I bought horses and people thinking, oh, yeah, I could do this in three days a week. No worries. Well, guess what? <laughs> um, you start to create a bit of a monster and what do you do, you know? Like, um, mind you, I, I've loved every moment of it. Yeah. Yeah, how it's developed and, and moved along. Um, so the choice for me to, if you like, semi-retire really took me from um, a path of, the corporate world and travelling to being at home and working from home, that was the best thing for me. Mm. 
And how did you choose Horses and People magazine? Was it an advert that you saw somewhere that the magazine was for sale? No, I actually, I actually knew the previous owner mm-hmm. for a number of years before I, you know, decided. And she actually put it on to me, you know, look, do you want to come in as a business partner? And um, thus, you know, that was a great opportunity for me. It was probably time in my head to move away from the corporate world and start to do something that I wanted to do. And how did she convince you? Or did it take no convincing at all? How hard was it for you to make that decision? It wasn't, there was no convincing. There was no convincing, yeah. It was just, this is, it it was obviously, um, she brought it up to me because she used to often talk to me about um, what was happening with horses and people and, you know, we'd have dinner and a glass of wine and, you know, discuss certain things. And it really didn't take any convincing and it, it didn't enter my mind to take on a partnership, even when um, Annie and I were speaking at different times, until she said, hey, why don't you? And I said, hey, why not? Great. And can you tell us a bit about the journey from, what year was that? 2006. Six. It's now yeah. 2018. How has that changed? And how has it changed you as well? And did it change? I've got a few questions. How did it change you? Did it change yeah. the way you saw horses? What happened in, in all those years? Because I've seen a change in the magazine and I'd love to hear about how that happened on your end because you were the one making the changes. Okay, well, when um, I first went into a partnership with Horses and People, it was quite a parochial magazine, already been around for about I don't know, 14 years. Um, and it was only... Queensland and northern New South Wales. So the the name in that area was really quite well established, and it started off as a um, a calendar of events. What yeah, you know, that was in the centrefold where where you could go to do what what competitions and um, clinics and so on and so forth were on, and articles that were you know of interest to people. I actually seen quite an opportunity for the magazine to go national and to go into um, news agents and, you know, be a a far more predominant magazine in the market. And thus I started to work on it and, um, you know, Annie decided to uh, take a back step and so I just kept moving forward with Christina at that time. Christina then had to take on a big job as a layout and, you know, a lot of the graphic stuff because I had no idea about that. Um, mm. And then it was just through the course of conversation with Christina that we sitting down and looking at the magazine and saying, you know, Christina being very scientifically minded and me being very welfare minded, we said, you know, there's nothing there to, you know, people don't really want to hurt their horses in our belief. They just don't understand. And maybe we need to start to educate people. And thus the magazine took a evidence-based and ethical approach to um, the nutrition and health and training and so on that horses and people are today. And it also, um, you know, taking on those genres, if you like, the magazine became much more expensive to produce, so the time came where it had to go into news agents 
um, and the uptake was great. And it's really, it really has built, going through that process and the growth of the magazine, it really has taken a life of its own. The readers are extremely loyal. It's humbling. It's seriously humbling to see that obviously what we do is what people really needed. Definitely. I agree with that completely. I've loved watching the magazine evolve over the years because it's something that just wasn't there. You know, there was just nowhere. You could get it from an individual person here and there, that type of information yes. you were looking for, but to have it all in one place and to know that you're bringing quality and, and being able to see that each time, it's very exciting to watch the change that happened. And it also means for me that the horse industry itself is changing. You know, that yes. there are these people out there that we have access to, which is even more exciting. Yes. Yeah, I mean, a lot of people, you know, through the course of conversation with people along the way and, and adding to the growth of the magazine, a lot of people were going to um, places like Google to find out information, and it's scary, some of the information on, on Google. Yes. And, you know, there really had to be something that was evidence-based, something that the research showed and proved that this works um, and the information was, you know, up to date. Yeah, and it's and it's sound and you can check that person and, yeah. and know that there's this amount of people that they've helped and speak to the people that they've helped so you get the word of mouth as well. It's very hard to do that off Google in one article. And, and you, you're so right. I mean, it's at times it's almost, yeah, well, it's brought me to tears at times because I've had people, we, we wrote um, a little while ago now a series on lemonitis you know, we looked at all the different avenues of laminitis, you know, from the science perspective, from the podiatrist perspective, from nutritionists and vets. And at the end of the day, if uh, people know their horse better than I do or anybody else does, mm. and at the end of the day, if we give them the most correct and up-to-date information, it makes it a bit easier for them to make the decisions on their horses instead of spending, you know, squillions of dollars on this treatment or, or that shoeing or different things that are out there, it might be just a change in their, their, um, the food you're giving them. Yes, yes. You can spend, as we all know as horse owners, you can spend an absolute fortune trying to figure out what's wrong, trying to figure out what's right for your horse. But if you're given all the information yeah. there, and you can cipher it yourself and, and as you said, you know your horse better than anyone. You can use your gut yeah. feeling and go, okay, yeah. now I've got some sound things that I could actually try. Yeah. And, and I had feedback on, on that article and that, uh, on that series of articles and that's why I brought it up. I had a lady ring me and she was seriously in tears and she said, I can't believe it, Maxine, you know, like I was trying this and that and everything else for my horse with lemonitis. And it was something that I read in your magazine that made the difference. And I'd got to the stage where I was thinking I had to put the horse down and I'm ringing you to tell you you saved my horse's life. Well, you know, I cry. Yeah. She cries. And at the end of the day, who could ever pay for that? You know? Exactly. For me, that was 
so much satisfaction that I was able to give somebody a peace of mind and that we were able to save a horse's life. Yeah, it's why you get out of bed every morning. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. And how do you choose the contributors in your magazine? Because they're very progressive from what I've seen in other magazines. How do you choose who's actually going to contribute? What we have is we have a a vision for the magazine. And this vision is what we call our, our filter. And it's a funnel. And all this stuff goes into that filter. If it snags anywhere, like it's not ethical, there's no um, research done on it or what for whatever reason, you know, there may be some parts in it that we don't feel is welfare um, friendly. Um, it won't pass that filter. And I really leave that up to Christina. Christina has both of us in mind in that area. Chris, Chris and I have got a super relationship, working relationship insofar as that we are one mind for the vision of the magazine. It's so much easier to do anything in life when you know what your values are. Yep. Yep. You can always cross check back against your values and know that so that everyone goes through a a vetting. Yeah. I'll send something to Christina that'll come up on my computer that "Mm, this looks interesting. Um, And then Christina will go and do the research on it. And in the meantime, you know, I'm contacting advertisers and, you know, doing the marketing bit. Yeah. And how much have you changed over those years in how you see horsemanship and the horse world and, and how you treat horses? Are you doing some learning as you go along as well or are these things that you've always believed in? How can you not learn? You know, I mean, <laughs> certainly it's changed a lot. I mean, going back to those days as a kid on the pony you know, built around the paddocks, I sit back and I wonder, you know, how lucky I was that that little pony did not jack up on me, some of the things I used to do to them. It was never never thought in my mind that I was being cruel, but, you know... As kids, you don't know better. That's That was it, yep, yep. Back in our childhood, those these kinds of things weren't around. We didn't have this type of information. Oh, and a pony was supposed to be fun. And as much as I loved and spoiled and probably overspilt my, spoiled my pony, as so many people do, and probably overfed it and um, probably tried to work it too hard one day a week by going down down to the property and, you know, expecting it to, if it wasn't going to stand under the peach trees, well, I had to go and get the, the old Clyde. But, um, yeah wondering why my horse wouldn't stand under the tree so I could pick peaches like the old Clyde did because he didn't know what I was asking him. Yeah. And that's the biggest thing that I've learnt is um, horses, I think a lot of horses do things wrong because they don't understand. What we're asking them. Or the rider, yep, or the rider doesn't understand how to tell them. And how have you changed that yourself over time? Can you give us an example of how you've changed that yourself? Well, I, I'm just starting to work on a, um, a, a standard bred mare that I had. One of the things that really hits home to me is the amount of groundwork I do. Now compared and, to uh, what you did. Yeah. Mm. 
Yeah. Although the Stanleys are very benign temperament and, um, you know, great riding horses, I want my mare to understand what I'm asking when I'm asking. And a lot of groundwork, a lot of groundwork makes a lot of difference to them. So you work on the principle that you should be able to ask it on the ground first so that when you're in the saddle, you have the same cue? Yes. Great. And that is that translating well? Yes, it does. It does. To ask a horse to move over quickly to either put it in a position or get it out of danger is much easier if you've done the groundwork. And I, I really enjoy doing that. I really, once you, you understand the principles and it's um, really looking at um, learning theory with Andrew McLean, it's once you, under, you, know, you start to understand the principles, the joy of the responses and um, the results of the horse um, is far better. Yeah, it's like the light bulb goes on. Yeah, yeah it's, it's very rewarding. Yeah, and isn't it nice to have reward-based training instead of, oh, my God, how yeah. do we get through this training? Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, it's one of the reasons, even though we do have standard breeds here and my partner um, trains racing standees, um, we only do a couple. You know, we only have one or two racing because you know, my partner works full-time. But I very rarely go to the races because... Yeah, I won't apologise for it, but I've got a big mouth and I don't like people doing the wrong thing by the horse when at the end of the day what they're asking is the horse has got no idea. Yeah. A lot of behavioural issues that they put down to the horse is a simple communication issue. Oh, absolutely. And who suffers from it? Yeah, the horse suffers from it. The horse doesn't want to do this, it does that, all wrong. You know, and um, a lot of people have such wastage in this industry because it's been a man-made issue. Yeah. Can you see any ways, now that we're on to, uh, you know, standard bread racing, can you see any ways that we, we can constructively make a positive difference within something like the standard bread racing industry? What do you think needs to be put in place? Look, I think... Um, At the end of the day, I think that's almost impossible. <laughs> Why is that? <laughs> because cause you're dealing with people that train horses and they're training from past experience or what they've read on Google. To break a horse in is to break it. Mm. And, you know, if it doesn't do the right thing, let's add a bit more gear to it. And changing those perceptions of these people that have this attitude of, well, my father did it this way and he won hundreds of thousands of dollars, so I'm going to. Yeah. So it really is starting younger and educating. It really is educating now, the young people coming through. Yeah, and um, that is probably a positive sign that I'm starting to see that there is um, a bit more of an educated trainer coming through. It's not entrenched in the industry at this stage. But, um, you know, it, it's something that seriously needs to be looked at. There's a lot of information about even the use of whips. Um, and when Racing Queensland tried to ban the whip, well, went up in roars. <laughs> yeah, but once again, it's a tool. It it's is. It's a tool 
to aid communication. And if your yes. communication's clear in the yes. first place, is there really a need for a whip? These are all the questions that I ask myself. Look, you know, I mean, I have no problem with, um, with carrying a whip because some horses will, for one reason or another, whether they're young or whatever, on the racetrack, they, they can all of a sudden, you know, see a shadow of a horse coming up beside them and, it, it, you know, a little fright. And a little tap on, on the, the opposite side to keep them in line is not a problem, but a flogging is not doing the job, you know? Yeah. Like I said, a line of communication. Yep. And if your communication's clear, you'll be able to tap or show the whip or things like that and you can make the changes necessary. Yeah, it's a deep topic, the racing industry. I've always said that I believe that there are horses out there that love to race. I don't think... Oh, yeah. Everything yep. should be banned. I think there are horses that love to jump. I think there are horses that love to race. Yeah. But I'd love to see the industries themselves have an overhaul. I think the human element of the industry yep. is um, is the part that really needs a, a massive going over. Yeah. You know, and the Integrity Commission, um, you know, they're, they're getting far more onto it now. Is that just for standard breads? I haven't heard about that before. The Integrity Commission or the Integrity Department of Racing Australia, they've all got their state government governance. And um, what they do is they view the races and they say, well, you know, you pulled the horse up, um, you overused the whip. They do calls on the properties regularly. They can... Yeah, they can pull trainers up if the horse looks malnourished or unwell. You know, you, you know, they can make them, you know, do what they need to do to give the horse, um, you know, welfare. And how big is the Integrity Commission in each state? Is it one person or is it 50 people? No, there's, um, oh gosh, I couldn't tell you exactly, but there's a, there's a board. Okay. In Queensland, they've got their own offices. Yeah, they, they watch the horses and they watch the races and I think they're getting far more proactive. With the world of social media, you'd think there's a few more eyes on people now in the racing industry. So that's one thing that the internet, you know, even though it can be it's dangerous, good, yeah. it can also be very helpful. Yep, yep, yep. And, I mean, look, the sad thing with the racing industry, they've got so many people involved that they can't have a steward or an integrity person on every property every day. Mm. They do the best they can do. And I think they're, do, they're certainly proactive and heading in the right direction. Mm, that's great. How much does it take to get a standard bread on the track for racing? Can you tell us a bit about your horses? Well, the horses that we've got at the moment, we've bred ourselves. How long's a bit of string? You can you can look at um, you know the the brood mare, what the brood you know to have the brood mare put in foal, the cost of the stallion, the rearing and and all of that. And it's you know I've never sort of sat down and because I've only been I've only ever done it as a hobby, but you could look at around just in training about two hundred dollars a week per horse mm-hmm. for feed, and that's if you're doing the training. Yeah. And this is where it's difficult in the industry as well, because you put a lot of money in and if you don't get any money yep. out at the end of the day, it can be a bit of a vicious cycle. But again, it's the horse that suffers. 
Absolutely. I mean, not now, Grace, but yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's what I mean, because it's a hobby uh, for you and it's yeah. sustainable for you because you're racing two horses. But I mean, the industry itself, that's why I have empathy yep. um, for the humans in the industry because they put a lot of money in. Oh, absolutely. And to not get any back must be really quite difficult, but we need to find a common ground, a middle ground where everyone wins here somehow. Yeah, and that, that bit would be really nice. And, I mean, at the end of the day, if you can't afford to feed a horse properly or train it correctly, you shouldn't have it. It's the golden rule, isn't it? Unfortunately, you've got you know, people out there that make a living out of it and, um, you know, they've got to have results. The, the funny thing is that using some of the correct training methods will give them a better result if they just understood it. Um, and take a lot less time if they taught the horse to understand what they're asking. Yeah. I mean, our horses to run faster, we never use a whip here. Mm -hmm. How do you do it? Whistle. Whistle at them. And how do you train them to know whistle means run faster? It's a bit like clicker training. Mm -hmm. You know, um, our horses, they love to run. On the ground, I would teach them right from the start to, yeah, come on, nugget, and whistle him. Mm-hmm. Yeah, whenever we were walking, I just whistle him. Start it from a very early age, even yeah. before he's racing. Yes, from foals. Wonderful, and that's the lovely thing about starting from the start and breeding your own. And you know, it's at the end of the day, it's out of your hands once that horse is on the track. And there's probably, you know, like I'll go to the races and I'll say to the, the, the driver, you use whip on my horse and I'll use a whip on you. Yeah. Yeah. So it's very clear, clear communication. Everyone knows where they stand. Yeah. Look, I don't mind them hitting the gig because that's a bit of a sound of a high pitch and maybe emulates a whistle or, or whatever because sometimes when you're in the race, the horse is not going to hear a whistle. mm They've got people around them, all around them, screaming at the horses. And I don't mind them hitting the gig, but I don't like them hitting my horse. Yeah. We don't use whips here in that property. And you try to lay into one of our horses and they stop. Because mm, I don't know what they've done. Yeah. Unclear communication. Mm. It has no meaning to them. That's fantastic. But at the end of the day, as I said, you know, it's out of your control once the horse goes out onto the track. So how do you choose your racing drivers? Look, we trial them. Yeah, when I say trial them, um, we'll change our drivers from time to time. And some drivers are yeah, better on the hands than others. And eventually you just come to a, um, you know, a driver that suits you, if you like, and your horse. When I say you, I mean the horse. And are they easy to find? Oh, no, not really. More education needed again. Yes. <laughs> Come on down, horses and people. <laughs> yes, 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 yes. So that's, the, you know, the, the importance of what it is that you do. Yep. It just keeps coming back time and time again, doesn't it? Yep, yep, yep. Connection and communication. I love the industry, but we do it our way, and it's probably very different to how everybody else does it. And, you know, I will never be a millionaire out of racehorses unless it's a fluke. 
But we, you know, Steve enjoys doing it. It gives him something to do. Every afternoon he comes home from work and he's out on the track. And I've got to tell you, those horses, particularly when he's using the jogger, we've got a jogger that we pull behind the cars. When he pulls up with that jogger, those horses are pushing on the fence. They love it. Isn't that wonderful? And imagine a world. This is I keep a, you know, I use my positive mindset and I'm like, imagine a world where every horse that's on any track racing wants to be there. Imagine that. Imagine, you know, that's a race I'd turn up to watch. That's a race I'd support, you know, hands down, no question about it. And that's all I really ask of any industry, you know, does your horse really want to be doing this? You know, if I see it and I've, if you like, for the want of a better term, if I see it, one of our horses is not happy being there, he gets sacked. Great. And he'll go, he'll go into the paddock for a little while and then he'll be rehomed as a, a riding horse. You know, I did have one in particular that um, we bought some time ago and we uh, horses and people did a, a series of 15 articles on this horse and his name was Ideal Guy, Andy the Standard, that he was commonly known. He's got his own Facebook. And that was the... Track to Hack? Yes, yeah. Series, yeah. Yeah. Now, that was that was so popular. Um, when he presented at Equitana, I mean, the place was packed, and it was five and ten deep, and Andrew McLean was out there with this horse. And here he was after eight months of being under, under saddle, and he did beautiful forward-moving walk and trot. He cantered, picked the lead up on the canter on both leads from the walk and the halt. Um, he did shoulder in, he did travere, he did um, half pass. He also did a walk pirouette, a little bit messy, but he did it. And that was after him being under saddle for eight months. He was a particularly good-looking standee. But, yeah, we paid quite a bit of money for that horse. And I went to the races. As I said, I don't, you know, I don't go to the races very often for some reason. I'd gone to this race where Andy was racing and I went into the birdcage, which is where they keep all the horses prior to racing, and he was shaking. Oh. And I said to Steve, that's it. This is his last race. Mm. And Steve's going, but, but, you know, because he was a Canadian-bred horse and he you know, had some butte breeding, but I don't care how well he's bred. He's, look at him. He's shaking. So in the paddock he went and took me a few months to talk him into letting me take that horse and have him re-educated. And um, he was a, he was a beautiful animal, and then we donated him and um, to this series, and you know like people so supported that horse, like the Animal Behavioural Centre and Alistair McLean, you know they gave us all his training free, Racing Queensland paid for their accommodation. We had people paying for food, and you look at um, Greg Grant's saddlery; they supplied everything that horse needed for his training in gear. And um, then when he went on to his new owner, they, they supplied a new dress, uh, dressage show saddle for him. Wow. So That's got to give you hope in the industry itself as well, that there's, a, there's so much hope around and so much support around that when something great's done, you know, people will get involved. And there, there's a number of groups that do a super job. And um, one of them here in Queensland that I've, I've joined is um, Standard Bread Association of Queensland. And they're a national, there is a national body of that. They do a great job where they'll take the standee off the track, they'll let them down, um, they rehome them. But they, there's, there's a criteria 
to rehoming one of the standees, and that is the bet, has to have regular bet checks. The horse does not belong to the new owner until after 12 months. They'll do checks on the horse, um, and if you've got the horse in good condition, good food feed condition, and are doing the right thing by the horse after 12 months, then the horses the names changed over to the new owner. Wow! But they're very stringent, you know, and they do an absolute super job. I know the Queensland mob up here are just so so committed to rehoming the standard breeds here in in Queensland. They just do a super job. Yeah, it's fantastic. Just on, um, I live in the Sanford Valley in the northwest of Brisbane. And on our local horse community page, there was a woman there who was saying that she was going down to the local equestrian club and she was going to do dressage on her standard bread. And the way she wrote it was so beautiful. And she said, please don't let me be alone. Bring all your standees out and let's show the world that they're actually good at dressage. Give me some help here and and let's form a community and, and let's bring out the standees for dressage. And it's amazing the amount of people that have supported her in that and said, yes, I've got a standee. Yes, I'll bring him down. Yes, I'll have a go. Yes. And the thing is um, a lot of the standard breeds have really good movement and they do make a very good dressage horse. Not all of them. Um, and, and the ones that jump, jump very well. Wow. One that I rehomed a little while ago was one that I'd bred and they've started doing cow work with him. Wow, agility. You know, yep. That's incredible. I mean, this horse doesn't really know any fear, if you like. Like, he'll prop up and go, hooly dooly, that might eat me, but has the sense to be able to walk up to something and check it out because from birth he was taught no fear. Mm. The owners are just having the best time with that horse. And they've just done the most wonderful job. You know, everything's slow, everything's quiet. They live right next door to a rifle range. Wow. Yeah, Jack just doesn't hear it. That's fantastic. They've got such a benign temperament. You know, they're they're suitable to do pretty well anything. Best trail riding horses in endurance. Really? Oh, they're an all-rounder. They are. And people have this attitude, I'm going to get a free horse. Well, you know... In my opinion, you give a horse away free, you don't have, that horse has no value. Yeah. Yeah, it's really important to understand that. But they're a great animal. Horses and People magazine really support the the standard breeds. Are there any soundness issues within the breed that you know of? Depending on confirmation and so on and so forth, generally they're they're tough. Mm. They are so tough. Oh, they're a little bit short in the in the croup and maybe a little longer in the barrel. Um, not all, because what we've seen over the years is the introduction of the um, the American breeds that breed them a bit finer and more thoroughbred looking. That's the one I saw riding past my house the other day. Yep. I would never have guessed it to be a standard bread, but I saw the branding on its neck and I was like, oh, my word, I've never seen one look so fine. And it was a lot more for want of a better word, compact and fine than the standee I've got. You know, um, we put Ideal Guy on Facebook and said to people, name the breed. You know, there was nearly 100 responses to it. Only two people came up with standard breeds and that was because they were two people that knew the horse. Wow. What were the other people saying? Morgan, thoroughbred, 
uh, young warm blood. Wow. Yep. That's amazing. This was a side-on shot, so it wasn't we weren't hiding anything. Yeah, incredible. So it's it's like a lot of breeds. Now, do you know much about standard breeds and where they come from? The standard bread was originally bred from a horse called uh, Messenger, which was a thoroughbred. Ah, okay. So, yeah, and they've actually got a mutated gene that, like the Icelandic totters, it just gives them another gate to pace. Mm. Um, so it's a, it's a mutated gene. So um, that doesn't mean that that's all they do. Um, the standard breeds can be trained to walk, trot and canter as every other horse. Because they've been taught to go woe at a, a walk and a pace, takes a little time to bring them back. I mean, I look at the young man, oh, she's not so young anymore, but she's seven years old. She was habituated standard bred. So was Andy. Mm. You know, they, they, they were seriously habituated. Andy would only pace. Very rarely did you see him trot. And once they learn to trot, they quite, I mean, the mare I'm doing, Dee Dee, in the round yard, you don't ever see her pace, never. Wow. And she picks up the canter at the right lead, both sides, albeit a bit excitable at this point in time. <laughs> but, you know, she does it. And um, her tr she's got the most amazing trot. Yeah. I can't I can't say she's got an amazing candor at this point in time because she gets all whoop you do about it. And um yeah, she's still doing the three beat canter, so it's yeah. Oh sorry, four beat canter and yeah, it's slowing her paces down. Yeah. But I don't ask a lot of her canter. She virtually does it. I do I'll say to her, you know, when she's doing any standard trot, I'll ask her to canter and she'll canter. But I don't insist on a canter. Mm. When I know that, when I can see that she's ready to do it, I'll ask it, but I'll bring it back to the trot. Beautiful. How do you know when she's ready to do it? Oh, yes, it's body language. Mm -hmm. Once you once you get to know the horse, um, yeah, you know, I can see when she's. Oh, can I? Can I? Can I? Okay, canter. Um, okay, you've done a few canters. Let's trot now. Beautiful. It's almost letting her release something that's in her, um, but then we bring it back to the ordered trot. Fantastic. And what's your vision for her? Oh, look, I'm, I'm just back at um, starting to ride again now, so I don't really know because I had a quite a bad accident um, a, a few years ago and fractured seven bones in my back. So it, it's put me off the horses on their back for a, few, for a number of years now, about five years. Was that a horse riding yeah, injury? Yeah. Ouch. Yeah, um, but it took, um, you know, well, the doctor said, no, no more riding, never, ever. Well, you know, <laughs> that's that's been a bit hard for me and I really tried not to do it, so I sold all my riding gear so I wouldn't be tempted. Yeah. And I've just got to the stage where, yeah, bugger it. <laughs> the temptation yeah. is a bit too great. I've always worked with the horses on the ground and dealt with the falling down and the... Um, the babies and, um, you know, teach, I teach the horses to lead and behave on the ground and park and, you know, 
And after your accident, has that made you even more thorough? Yes. Do you think with your horses so that your safety is paramount yes. when you get on? So that you don't, yep. yeah. And, um, and probably that's the reason I'm so pedantic about my groundwork. Yeah, safety is important. It's a long way to fall. Well, it is. Yeah. At my age. Yeah, I've still, still got children. You've got a magazine to run. It's not like when you're a kid and you can bounce off and take a few days off school yeah. or whatever, rehab and and get back to it, it's like, well, I, I can't actually afford that much time off or to be walking around like that. Well, luckily they were stable fractures, so I didn't lose my arms and legs. Um, so mm. I was very fortunate. But it was the silliest thing, you know. Um, my father was down in a nursing home in Ballina and my sister lived down there and he, he'd been very, very ill. And I'd, what I'd do is I'd leave work usually on a Friday afternoon I'd spend a couple of days down there with dad every couple of weeks and he went through a stage where you know they called us in and said well you know his number's up and um like it had been been very very stressful but unfortunately at that stage he hadn't died but um Susan said to me the next time I come down I've done something for us to relax Mm -hmm. and she'd arranged a, um, a trail ride on the beach. And I don't, I'd never ridden trail horses, really. Um, mm -hmm. um, and I thought, oh, God, okay. So I went with her, and I was by far the most experienced rider on the, on the ride. And um, I don't know what happened because I can't remember, but um, I was ankle deep in the water. And um, I don't know, something might have hit the horse's leg. I had a horse on one, a couple of horses on one side of me and the water on the other side. And the horse went up and I came off um, and the horse had nowhere to go but over me. Oh. Um, so, you know, that's where the injury occurred was, you know, with the horse going over me. And what a shame because it wasn't your horse and you hadn't had the time yeah. and the horse was just in a position where it went into flight. Well, you know, you would never have picked it either. And, you know, this just is, is a, a prime indication as to how dangerous a horse can be. So here I am riding along, encouraging people around me. You know, there was a young girl beside me that had never ridden. And the worst thing, she said, I've been so frightened of riding because um, my father rode a horse and came off and broke his back. <laughs> and, um, I, was, I was sitting there saying, look, you're doing really well. Just give him a bit of a squeeze with your legs and ask him to walk up. Look how well you're going and blah, blah, and all of a sudden, bang, I'm gone. I can see why it is that you really took it back to the ground then because there's, yep. there's calculated risk and there's silly risk. And, yep. and you don't need to take silly risk. And, you know, I think the more time that we spend on the ground with our horses and opening those communication lines, the better in any case. A friend doesn't happen overnight. Yeah. Yeah. And I really like to have that friendship with my horse, all the horses that we have here. Beautiful connection. It is. It is. You know, many years ago, um, before I separated from my husband, I had a horse that was came from Movie World. Yes. And, and this horse, um, it was a Palomino called, his paddock name was Ben, his show name was Shalimi Katari, and this horse used to do the Annie Oakley show many years ago at Equitana. And I had such a relationship with this horse, and, um, like, my husband and I were separating and I was just absolutely gutted. And I'd go down to that paddock and, and just stand there with that horse, and that horse would wrap himself around me. Mm. 
Beautiful. Yeah, and I mean, then <laughs> I went overseas for a, for a, a number of months, and when I came back, the guy that got bought the horse back from me was the guy that trained the horses for um, Movie World. He brought him home to me, and. I just couldn't believe it. He, and he didn't say too much. He said to me, Maxine, I'm just heading around with a float. I've got a horse for you. And it was it was Ben. Mm. And this horse knew where he was. He was screaming coming down that driveway. Oh. You know. And Happy I just, to be home. Yeah, I just stood there and cried. <laughs> yeah. How beautiful. And how beautiful of that person to know yeah. where the horse belonged. And And he knew that I needed him. Yeah, you needed him. He needed you. Yep. Yeah, because the horse had actually been diagnosed with ring bone. So he wasn't a horse that you could do a lot with anymore, but he was my mate. Mm. Imagine if everyone in the horse world did that and said, mm. right, I know exactly where you need to be yep. and, um, and made sure it happened. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and I mean, the only reason I let Ben go in originally because he was starting to get on a bit and I felt that putting him in the paddock for all the months that I was overseas was probably not the best thing to do for him. He needed to keep working. Mm. So that was the only reason I let the horse go. But he didn't, you know, after eight months of being away from me, he came home and he knew exactly where he was and he just got off that float and headed straight to his paddock that he always had. Wow. Yeah, they say they remember. Yeah. You know, they really do. They remember kindness, and I truly believe that as well. Absolutely, yeah. I do. I do. Yeah. And is he still with you? No, no, he's passed away now. Um, yeah, he was quite an old horse then, so he's passed away now. Wonderful. And back to the magazine for a moment. Where do you see it going in the future? It's still in a growth period and hopefully it'll continue to develop over the years. And we'd just really like to see more people reading it, whether it be um, digitally on the website or a hard copy magazine, because once people do read it, they get it. That's it. They understand what, what we are. It's just a matter of getting that magazine into the right hands, I guess. And, you know, that's a, an uphill battle um, all the time. And it's the breadth of knowledge in the magazine as well. It's not just about horse training. It's about keeping horses. It's about nutrition. It's about your paddocks, how to maintain them. And there's options in there as well Absolutely. because there's um, the permaculture way yep. and then there's the grass farmers yeah the grass farmers are, and you know all the permaculture and property development stuff that we've been doing has been followed very strongly yeah and it's great to see that people are now starting to realize that if they maintain their properties properly and it, you know at the end of the day it's not it's the same as training a horse i mean once you've done the work and it's there it's not hard to maintain and the benefit to the animal is so so far outweighs the work that you've done, but it also um, the benefit to yourself. Yeah, knowing that the land is good, knowing that the land is going to be yep. there for a long time to come. Yep, yep. 
Mm. And there's things in there on nutrition and it's balanced as well yes. because there's a bit of herbal yep. and there's a bit of nutrition and there's a bit of, yep. you know, there's a bit of everything. So that's what I really like about it is that it's open in what it gives you. It gives you choice. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, sometimes because of the amount of articles that come on in on a subject it can be very themed, but we do try to keep it, um, the variety there. That's why we'll often run, let's say, respiratory. You know, the, there's a series of three articles on respiratory because it's such a big topic. It in itself can take up the whole magazine. Yeah. Yeah. And what I'm finding a lot is you don't know what you don't know. So it's amazing. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. it's a wonderful resource to just go, oh, maybe that's why I've got this problem with my horse because my horse has got these symptoms as well. So, you know, it's it's lovely that um, you learn. You just learn so much. I've learned so much. It's interesting as well that um, we're followed quite quite strongly by the racing industry. There's a lot of libraries that keep Horses and People magazine, which is pretty uncommon really to have a um, you know, subscri library subscribing to a horse magazine. What happens is a lot of vet students and vet nurses in their studies use it as a point of reference. Fantastic. You know, so it's not only the everyday person that owns a wonderful horse, it's the people that are studying to be able to help these animals that are using, um, using us as a point of reference. And that is seriously humbling. The amount of people that keep every issue, yeah, I'm is you know, and put them in catalogues, yeah. you know, yeah, because it's like little textbooks. And I think I'll get back yeah. to that one day. I know I'll need that one day. Yeah, it's like oh, my horse hasn't got lemonitis today, but it's really good to know about it. And the more we know yeah. about it, the more we can educate people. I saw somebody the other day, and they said. Yeah. I was talking about why I need to keep my pony where I do. And I said, he's insulin resistant and, you know, kind of oh, like yeah. diabetes. And, and, you know, so I just have to be careful that he doesn't get laminitis. And they were like, oh, I had a pony once. That must be what my pony had. His hooves were terrible and they did all this weird splitting thing. They had no idea. Oh, they had no idea because, and yeah. this was, you know, many years ago, but this kind of information just wasn't there. Yeah. And now yeah. it is. And, you know, yeah, and you know, it's and that's where I go back to the um, situation where people will ring up and say that made such a difference to my horse or my property, and you know, there's no executive pay. Yeah, it's all about. Um, I think where people get in touch with us and say, you know, like I, I couldn't understand why my horse wouldn't go on a float. Now we're often everywhere. You know, I got this horse to do trail riding and the very thing I want to do with it, I can't do because I can't get the thing on a float. So using the um, yeah, transport, transportation um, articles that we've got on the website, she goes, wow, how easy was that? It's coming back to that word again, education. Yes. Education at the beginning is the key and hopefully this will get into enough people's hands at a younger age. And as you're saying, if students are reading it, then, you know, change takes time. You were also saying before that you know the racing industry people read the magazine. Yeah, we have, we have a good following of the racing industry. One of the reasons being is, well, you look at 
the horse race, uh, Racing Australia, the Horse Academy, they have it in their libraries. At the end of the day, a horse is a horse and attendance, attendant, you know, because we don't go discipline Pacific, mm-hmm. you know, we don't say a dressage horse's tendon does this, this and this. We don't talk in that sort of um, language. It's all about the horse. Mm. So when they're talking about nutrition, they can look up information in the magazine or on the website about issues that they've got, their, you know, they've got problems with with their horses, getting too hot, getting you know, prevalence of subclinical laminitis is just huge and people don't even know. And then they go, you know, it's just not running right. Yeah. And it just gives them a checklist. Yeah. Look, yeah, look at all the options. Yeah. You know, put some hoof testers on the horse. Is it its foot? You mightn't think it is. Mm. Because a lot of people don't, can't look at a horse trotting and say, you know, it's lame. In, it might, they might be able to say it's lame in the front leg, but they don't know how to recognise it's lame in what joint. Mm. You know, and that's, that's a hard call, but certainly, you know, there is certain checks that you can do, understanding how to do a... Um, flexion test and things like that to find out where the soreness is. They they use the magazine quite a bit for that sort of thing. Like all the garage stores that are um, at the racetracks carry the magazine. So, yeah, the, the race industry is getting old of it. Great. And so earlier when I asked you, do you think, we, you know, that there's change able to be made in the horse racing industry, you're actually already making it. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah we do. Great. Um, we do have hope. We do. We do. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I'm I'm probably a little bit I I could turn around and say, yes, yeah, we have an effect of the in the race industry. And when you look at it that way, yes we do. But I'm not so bold as to say it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, you know, if they're reading it and they're using it, then it's it's definitely making a difference. That's fantastic. Oh yeah, and I'm really, you know, I'm really proud of it. I, I was when I used to go to the races more often. The race, the like the harness people being harness people, I'd go to the race. They'd see me, they'd swamp me. Have you got magazines? Wow! All wanting their magazine free, <laughs> and it's like, well, because <laughs> I because it was important to me. Um, disregard what it was costing me to get that magazine out. It was probably to a degree more important. What it was there was no degree in it. It was absolutely more important to get that information out to these people because, um, like I said, some of these good trainers got all the, you know, like horse trainers in general have got all this gear. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Good trainers don't use any of it. Yeah. You know, and if you can start off at the ground level, um, you've got a far better fighting chance. I mean, you look at some of the champions and why they don't take a leaf out of their book. There's a, there's a standard breed called Blacks are Fake. Natalie Rasmussen won what is the Melbourne Cup of, of Harness Race in the Inter-Dominion. She won that four times on Blacks are Fake. Blacks are Fake run in an open bridle, no head check. He was allowed to find his own balance and he... When he was racing, he used to peg himself out and look so comfortable. Wow. But he wasn't over-raced either. Mm. Yeah, there's, there's a lot of issues, isn't there? There's so many things that they could adjust. 
Well, a lot of the standard breads are raised week in and week out and sometimes twice a week. Where you look at the thoroughbred, they're generally raised every fortnight to three weeks. Mm, wow. I couldn't recover in that fast from competition myself. Well, the standies are so tough. Yeah. You know, that they do it. They go out there and they do it. Whether it's good for them or not is another thing, but they go out and they do it. What's the average lifespan of a racing standard bread? Well, Blacks of Fate was 12 years old before he retired. There's another quite wonderful one called, and he was, he was owned by some local people. I'll not think of his name. Oh, won't come to my head at the moment. Um, and he's just won his 100th race at 12 years old, at 11 years old. But wow. generally they're six, seven. When they retire? Yeah, usually because there's a lot of, because the standings are so um, stoic and, um, you know, they race week in and week out, it's, it's a lot of wear on their joints. So instead of showing you that they're not okay one time, they, they kind of hold it in until they break down. Yeah, yeah, they're a really, really stoic animal. Sometimes you'll find like uh, people don't recognise the signs and, and the horse will be what they call hanging on the on hanging on one side of his bit going around the track and he can't run at optimum speed or um, have control of his direction as well. So a lot of them will say, well, you know, my horse is hanging, so let's put a bit of gear on it. Mm. Instead of saying, well, you know, it, it might be sore in, it's sore in the feet, it might be sore in the back, you know, it might need its teeth done. Mm. Yeah. You know, there's other issues there. Yeah. Instead of exploring these issues because they feel they don't have the time, mm. well, that's what the, is the most common answer is we don't have time to do that sort of crap, you know, but they don't understand the amount of time it saves them and the benefit to the horse and the wins that you get far outweigh that extra piece of gear that you just went and paid a hundred bucks for. Yeah. That is not conducive to the horse. Yeah. Sometimes it is an evasion and sometimes like, you know, with hanging in the race, sometimes if you just put a pole from the bit to the, the saddle and say, no, you're not allowed to do that because it's an evasion, it'll straighten them up. But if it doesn't straighten them up, there's something wrong. Yeah, it's an, another one of those things as well. No time and how much money do I have to put into this horse before it starts giving me money back in the industry? It's, it's a big one. Yeah. And, you know, the, the lack of prize money, if you like, I, I think that they should pay every horse that races. Yeah. At least to cover the cost of getting the horse there. Um, in um, harness, they do. They pay fifty dollars a week up here in fifty dollars. Sorry, a horse that goes to the races, even if it doesn't place. But they should have better prize money and take it back further. Mm. Yeah, you know, to fifth or sixth place. So even the the hobbyists um, have the ability to at least pay for the horse's feed for the rest of the week. Or it's a cycle then, isn't it? It's, yeah. a, it's a giving back and the whole cycle is honouring everything in the cycle because the, if they don't have the horses there racing, then they don't actually have an industry and yeah. it's, you know, if the prize money isn't big, then it, it can't happen. And, yeah, that's, that's a really great idea. I'm glad they do that. Yeah. I mean, I don't know how it works in the thoroughbred game, um, but I know that with the standard breeds, 
if you take a horse to the races and it doesn't place, it'll get $50 at least. But, um, you know, they'll pay back to fourth or fifth position in the race, which is never used to be that far back, which mm-hmm. is good. It's great. So yeah. Slowly. Yeah. Changes are slowly happening for the better. Yeah. And, I mean, the hobbyists like us, I mean, Nugget or Ellsboy, one of our racehorses, you know, we, we, we don't expect that horse to go to every race and win. We'd like to see him go there and do his best. Yeah. It's like kids. Yeah. It's all you ever want. Do your best. And sometimes he's not in the mood to race. Mm, what do you do then? Go, oh, well, he wasn't in the mood to race. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. He can't be certain. He'll come in and he won't be blowing. Yeah. And, and he'll be a bit piggy, like he'll push on you. Yeah, yeah. And he'll kick the float all the way home. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you can always yep. kick it. Yeah, so instead of saying, you know, giving him a flogging and... Yeah, you're naughty saying, boy, you didn't win his money. Yeah, it's so well, mate. We all have those days. Yep. Yep. Mm, that's great. And, I mean, that goes right through life for yourself and for me and every animal and, you know, for one reason or another, you know, we just can't cope with it today. Yeah. That doesn't mean that we can't do it. It means it's just, you know, I didn't sleep well last night. Who knows? That might have been what, what happened to Nugget through the night. He might have decided to bolt up and down the paddock with the the filly next door. Mm. Yeah, I have teenage children. I deal with this often. Yeah. You know, the mood, yeah. the mood changes a lot. Yeah. Some days they're very excited and other days they need yeah. a lot of support. Um, and that's the other thing that um, we don't stable any of our horses. Ah, great. They live in a herd environment. Yes. Well, they live in a... Um, the, all the racehorses or horses are in, in work are in um, a group of paddocks that are all, all together. But they come out of that to work and they go back into it even before and after a race. Right. So they've got the ability to cool down and move around. Work off their own toxins. Mm. We don't give anything to, you know, reduce the toxins in the horse's muscles. We don't really have a problem with tie-up. We let the horses do it themselves. Um, and they are much better for it. Yeah, as nature intended. Yes. Beautiful. Yep. And the, the wisdom of the body. Yep. It knows yep. what to do. Fantastic. Yep. Well, Maxine, it has been such a pleasure talking to you today. Can you let us know how people can find you on your website and social media and how they can su- subscribe to your magazine? Okay, um, to get in touch with me, they can go um, onto our website and it's www.horses with an S, horsesandpeople.com.au. There's a lot of articles. There's something like 2,000 articles on that website where people can find out the most amazing information. Our Facebook um, for Horses and People, that's got a phone number on there. Or for any advertising, it's maxine at horsesandpeople.com.au or my mobile number 0417-436-537 and our landline is 0754 67
fantastic. And people can subscribe through your website to have the issue turn up at their door every month. You know, subscribing is a really budget way of of getting your magazine. Um, The magazine retails at $8.95 in the newsagents. Um, But if you subscribe, it works out at um, $6.41 and that's delivered to your house per issue. Yeah, I can't remember when a month's gone by. So I subscribe for ease Yes, in every way in my life. Then I know it just turns up and I think, wow, another month has gone by. Well, the difficulty we have is people all miss an article because, uh, sorry, miss an issue because it's sold out at the newsagent or for whatever reason, and they'll ring us up and say, can you send us a magazine? Well, we don't get many here. Mm. So we cannot supply the magazine from the office. Um, so, you know, if the magazine's important to you, you're better to subscribe. Yeah. You've got digital subscriptions as well. And the hard copy subscription is $75 for the year and the digital is 35 Less than a cost of a few bales of hay. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, and very well worth it. Absolutely. Beautiful. Well, thank you so much for joining me today, Maxine. It's been such a pleasure to talk to you. And thank you, Tracy, for your time. And I look forward to um, my next issue, which is coming out soon, turning up in the mail. Yes. Yes, it will be too. But just we're actually just putting the um the June issue together because we've got to work a month ahead. So talk about put a rush in the year. Yes, yes, you're always you're, wow. Yeah. You see the end of the year before we do. Oh, it's scary. It, it's, <laughs> it's really scary. Even before the June issue goes to bed, um, is when I start on the July, and the, wow. the June issue goes to bed in May. Yes, of course, it has to be ready and in print, ready for June yep. to start. Um, and another thing that I probably needed to bring up was the fact that with um, Horses and People magazine, um, and you would have noticed it as well as many of our readers, is that we don't do page after page after page of advertising. I did notice. Yeah, we really look at a situation or a problem or an issue that, that we're focusing on and then we look for the solution through the advertisers. So if you've got, um, for argument's sake, ulcers, mm-hmm. we'll find the best advertiser to advertise beside that ulcer. And remembering that the advertisers are the people that help us get this magazine out. Yeah, it's, again, it's part of the cycle. It is. It's part of the cycle of everyone's, you know, it takes a community and everyone's a part of making it happen and giving back. So it is important. Well, if we don't have the wonderful contributors that we have and the staff that um, are run by horses and people, with horses and people and the advertisers, it doesn't happen. It's about supporting the whole gamut. You know, the magazine as an identity is the contributors, the people that work here and the, and the advertisers. An even better reason to subscribe. It is. <laughs> it is. Horses and People magazine is 100% Australian produced. It's printed in Australia and it's distributed in Australia, not only here to Australia but in a number of areas around the world. Fantastic. 100% Australian. Mm, that's great to know. 
Beautiful. Well, I personally, obviously, love your magazine. And what I love about it is the forward thinking nature of all of the articles and contributors that are there. It has given me a lot of hope that um, something in print and that has been around for such a long time is bringing such value to our industry. So I personally would like to thank you for everything that you do, Maxine, for, for me and for horses. Thank you so much. And, and it's certainly our pleasure. Wonderful. It's our pleasure and it's our passion. Yeah, and that means a lot. Passion is everything. Absolutely. And everybody that works with us has the same passion. That mm, comes through in the pages. Yeah, yeah. We don't put somebody on just to do copywriting that, you know, rereads all the articles and does, you know, helps Christina with that stuff that just does it for a job. So it's a bunch of passionate horse people bringing us amazing horse education. Well, it's not a job, it's a life. Mm, a lifestyle, yeah. Yeah, a life for us and the animals that we so dearly love. Mm, fantastic. Beautiful. Thanks, Maxine. You're, you're very welcome.